Hello, and welcome back to Searching Inward, a podcast brought to you by Restore Small Groups here in Nashville, Tennessee. We're so glad that you're joining us today, all you listeners, wherever you're at, in a car, in your home, uh, at work. Uh, it's always an honor to be joined by all of you uh, listening here. But uh, I'm George Stahl with Anna Bryant and Scott Real. Usually I say Scott first. I said Anna today. I noticed that. Yes. <laughs> They both matter, and um, we're also joined by Josh, yes, Josh. Our, our audio technician, just a really smart guy. <laughs> so uh, we're coming uh, to you today, and we want to talk to you today about uh, the week two of Journey to Freedom and what begins to happen in this week two. Um, it's called Hidden Prisons, and how uh, when we're encountering life-controlling issues, that this is a, a moment in this journey where we pause and we look at our interior life, and which we don't often get to do. Um, we're so focused on what's happening outside of us that it's rare to have moments in life where we could pause and, and look inward. And so that's what this week two is all about, so that we can begin to grow and move uh, away from our life-controlling issues to more joy and peace and, and goodness. So... Uh, Scott, let's start with you today. Um, the first day starts with uh, negative thoughts, breaking the chain of negative thoughts. So ha, ha, where, where do we begin? How do you start that? Well, I was thinking when I was writing it that this would be probably the most significant, important week of reading in the whole book because it really sets up the whole rest of the book. If, if the reader, the participant, does not really connect with the content in this week, it was going to be difficult for them to, to finish the process. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's interesting, I wrote this 17 years ago, and um, this first week here, Breaking the Chain of Negative Thoughts, um, I did not know then uh, about paradigms. I did not know then about, um, you know, secure attachments and neuroplasticity, neural pathways. Now I'm reading this and saying, wow. It really lines up even more so than I thought when I wrote it, which is just a testimony to God wrote the book. But what I was trying to start with is that when we ruminate, when we have a consistent negative thought that becomes a constant, permanent narrative in our minds, um, they say that whatever we focus on the most grows the most. And so we go back to Prochaska's that I base Journey to Freedom on moving people out of contemplation, moving them to have intrinsic motivation, intrinsic hope, where they're ready to, to take action to make changes in their lives. That was the purpose of Journey to Freedom. And so if we're just focusing on the negative thoughts, if the negative thoughts is what is constantly going, that's where I'm spending my time and my energy, now I know that's forming, ingraining those deep neural pathways which makes it very difficult. So we become what we are thinking about most of the time. And so this is what I was trying to articulate in this week, that these negative thoughts, which and thoughts prior, I would have changed that to negative beliefs. What am I saying to myself? How am mm. I interpreting me, my environment, my world, God, the whole thing? My interpretation of that, again, we go back to, we don't believe what we see, we see what we believe. And so... That's a paradigm. So 
what I, these negative beliefs that I have formed over my lifetime, which form a paradigm, that's going to become the depth of why I respond to life the way that I respond. So it really is important that we look at what am I telling myself? What do I believe about myself? And especially with God involved. Um, and I can be honest with you, just recently, I've, I've been through one of the darkest and most difficult. If it is, I would say it has been the most difficult period of my life the last couple months. And I've had to really look at what I really believe about me and God because how I was responding. And I saw that um, the, the negative beliefs that I had formed about myself that in shame and fear and all that stuff had gripped around me um, were creating a response uh, in places that I that just continued to show for my life. And I realized that I needed to be, that the transformation I needed needed to be at that level. And so this is really significant. What is it that you believe about yourself? What are you telling yourself about yourself? And more importantly, in the context of how God sees you and God's love towards you and care for you, those are going to line up um, so that we can move forward because those have got to change. Yeah, I now see how important what you're saying this this day, this week oh. is because uh, it does cause you to approach life from a place of helplessness and th those negative thoughts. So it really does put you in a place where you can't grow. You can't move toward anything good. It's just this overwhelming sense of, of helplessness. But Anna, how do we begin to make uh, a way to break that rumination chain <laughs> of just the, the patterns of those thoughts um, and the negative things that we're thinking about ourselves? How, how, do we, how do we begin to move out of that? Well, one of my all-time favorite quotes is from Mr. Stuart Smalley on Saturday Night Live. Okay. Who likes to say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is ridiculous, I know. But if, like, it makes us laugh to hear that. And yeah, we're not going to stare in the mirror and say that to ourselves in the morning. But if we can um, begin to maybe focus on what is good about us instead of what is negative about us, because everybody has flaws. There's not a human that doesn't have any. We all have them. And instead of maybe going straight to what we don't like about ourselves, beginning to work from our strengths and recognize what those are, um, and again, I think this is the crucial part of where living in community, a healthy, holistic, like healing community, like you find in a restore small group, um, you're going to have those positive things reinforced. People are going to see you for who you are and the potential that you have, um, that you're not defined by your shortcomings and your mistakes. And they call that out. They encourage that. They bring that forward. And so I think if we can begin to really recognize like, Yes, I do have shortcomings, but I also have potential. I also have strengths and really begin to play to those uh, and ruminate on those in a positive way in our, our mind. Like think about the possibilities much more than the limitations. Yeah, it's like, um, and it isn't just like positive thinking or positive self-health. Like, because we're talking about when we're in these negative patterns, we're already saying all those negative yeah. things. You know, we're looking at the problem. We're looking at the struggle. And so often to kind of jolt us out of that helplessness just to be reminded of something good, um, you know, to begin to start from this place of strength. So 
Yeah, it's not a denial or, or trying to ignore the pain or the struggle, but it's bouncing it out the way all human beings are made, not just with problems, but with, with goodness and, and greatness. So, and Scott, I know in the book you said, what is your prominent negative thought? Kind of the first day ends with that. What is that? You know, when you are all alone, identifying it and naming it is, you know, how you begin to, to move forward. I know, I think I, I heard Richard Rohr say that unless it is owned, unless it is named, it, it cannot be redeemed. Um, there's something powerful about speaking it out, hmm. especially like Anna was saying, in a healing community where there's empathy and compassion, that this is what I believe about myself. And it's really hard to say, you know, that in, I just feel inadequate this way, I'm, I'm not good enough this way, um, I, don't, I don't like this part of me. I, I, what I often hear people say, they ultimately just get to it, they just feel they're just not enough. And that's very common, and, and it's what I've struggled with. And so, and so if we go back to the, the, the core of all the human condition is the desire to be loved, I want to know that I know that you love me as I truly am, the real me with all my flaws, all my weaknesses, all my mistakes, that, that there's enough there that you will stay. There's, I don't know if there's anything greater um, as far as an aff affirmation to a human being than, than when you're fully known, as we've talked about, and you choose to stay. I'm not, I'm not abandoning you. I'm staying with you. you know? I believe in you. I'm for you. And I will never, ever abandon you. That is, I think, when we experience true love. So that desire is our greatest desire. But our fear, our greatest fear is that desire will not be met if you know the truth about me, which is these negative beliefs that I have formed, these negative thoughts. And, uh, and I'm not saying that um, we don't have areas of our life that are having a negative consequence on our lives. And, and they do need to be changed. But if we allow them to define us, we're really in trouble. When what needs to define us, I always say that it's, it's, I'm not defined by where I am. I'm defined by what I choose, where I'm going. And, oh, that's, I like that. And so we have a chance in these groups to redirect and to co-create with God and to participate with God in the creation of a whole new. But it takes a lot of energy and effort, and it cannot be done. As Thompson says in Anatomy of Soul, it can't be done alone. It must be done in community. It must be. When you do, I like you saying that uh, naming it out loud and then just hoping the response from others who hear it. You're hearing it yourself, someone else hearing it. And you've, you guys mentioned in groups that sometimes when you share something, you know how you're being felt by the others. And there's something really powerful when you do share that. And what you do feel from others, it's not judgment. It's not, oh, look how horrible that person is. But there is this universality of you know that they're feeling what you're feeling, and you're, you're all kind of in it together. But there is that fear. Sure. Um, and that's what you begin to cover in the second day is overcoming the state of fear. So sometimes it's just naming it, hearing it ourselves, but also sharing it with another. I mean, Thompson says it. it it's real. There is a significant risk in being known. I mean, I'm being vulnerable. I'm laying it out there for you. You might reject me. You might choose to, to say, oh, boy, I can't, I can't handle that. But that's what has to happen if I'm going to be set free, because unless it is met with grace and empathy. Um, so 
you know, we must be aware of who we are sharing mm-hmm. these right. these it, areas with. Yeah, you have to find safe people, and I think if you have uh, in your in your life place, if you are surrounded by a lot of people that maybe are not growing or emotionally healthy. Um, then that may not be the best place for you to be known. But um, finding a safe community like a supportive small group like Restore is the pl- you know the best place that you can come and overcome those things and begin to grow. And then people who are in your life place that maybe are not emotionally healthy, they're going to start to take notice. And they're going to see the changes and the growth. And that's where the ripple effect happens. Like a, a Restore small group can actually help you begin to develop and understand what safe community looks Mm -hmm. like. So if you don't have it in any other place in your life, like you experience it here, and now you can use that to make sure you're developing that even outside of a group. Go ahead, Scott. I I keep thinking about what Brene Brown wrote in one of her books. I think it might have been The Gift of Imperfection, but where she says that she's saying the same thing Thompson is saying. There's just no greater need for our healthy mental health for a human being than to have an experience of being fully known and exposing and being vulnerable. She says you must sprint to those places. But what she says is so significant was because if that stuff remains hidden and, and uncovered and stuffed, she goes, that's where neuroses and addictions and, mm-hmm. and all these psychosis. I mean, she's saying that all that negative mental health stuff is all going to flow from that repressed information. I mean... The truth sets us free, and finding those places, that's why she says sprint to them, get to them, wherever you can find those. And that's why I I almost say that the the most healthy people I know in my life, they're in recovery. They have a recovery community, whether it's AA, SA, NA, FA. They go to those meetings, and they're fully known. And what are they, how's it received? We're for you. We believe in you, and we will never abandon you. And we're all going to get well together. You know, and I mean, versus our society, which is judgmental and, oh, just, you know, condemning and shame-based. No, and I want to say like social media, it's just it's yeah. dangerous. So it's obvious that this is an important step to move toward the fear. Um, the, the, the fear of the thing that you're maybe not paying attention to or denying or unwilling to confront the fear of saying that out loud and acknowledging it and naming it and sharing it with another that can affirm not just that challenge or that problem, but also the goodness, the thing that you're moving toward. So uh, you're obviously saying that fear gains strength when you retreat from that part, that life-controlling part of your life, but it diminishes when we step into it, and and especially when we step into it with support of others. So you're saying face it, explore it, accept it, and learn a new response to it. So uh, over anything else, Anna, with overcoming fear? That- I mean, I just love this, this quote from Susan Jeffers. It says, we cannot escape fear. We can only transform it into a companion that accompanies us on our exciting adventures. Take a risk today, a small or bold stroke that will make you feel great once you've done it. So, like, repressing that fear, trying to sidestep it is not helpful, but just recognizing, like, fear is part of life. Embrace it. Understand that it can be scary. But also, like, um, proceed with caution and discernment as you overcome that isolation and, you know, find your safe people to share with. Man, that's that's wonderful. 
Scott, in day three, <clears throat> you asked the question, is there an area of your life you're in denial about or unwilling to look at? So No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, you don't think so. <laughs> Anna's perfect here in the room. She's in denial of nothing, <laughs> except that she's in denial. <laughs> okay, fair um, enough. So we're, we're moving from, yeah, these negative thoughts we're stuck in to fear that's uh, holding us back from naming it and moving toward help and growth. And, but then you begin, to, you know, day three is about denial, denial in this second week and procrastination. Um, so talk a little about that. So what I'm trying to write for the readers here was that um, how we are responding to fear. And what I found was that there were three basic responses. And actually when I wrote the book, I only knew of two. But then as years went on, I realized there was three. So in the, in the next edition, I'll have the third. But <laughs> what we fear, we first will deny. Second, we'll just procrastinate. We'll just, we won't deal with it. We'll just keep putting it off. But there was a third, and it's actually, I think, the more deadly of the three responses, and that's perfectionism. Mm. And the way that, way that works is perfectionism is it's the belief that if I'm a perfect man, if I'm a perfect employee, if I'm a perfect husband, if I'm a perfect wife, if I'm a perfect father, if I'm a perfect mother, then you will what? Love me. You love me. And so I'm actually attached. It's almost like an addiction that if I can be perfect and make everyone happy and never disappoint anyone, if I can be perfect, I can control what I have to have from you, and, and what I have to have from you is that you tell me that I'm, that I'm enough. And, and, that's, and, and that's the definition, I think, of an attachment and the desire to be loved. And I realized that. So, so first, I'll just deny it. You know, I'll just out of sight, out of mind. Um, or I'll just keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. But the worst response is I'm going to try and control it by being perfect. I'll be the perfect parent. I'll be the perfect husband, or I'll be the, the perfect, I'll just be the perfect person. And somehow, some way, that will control that longing for you to love me, um, which is, which is what we, which is what we do. Um, Yet, it is completely impossible. Perfection is not attainable. But you'd be surprised at how many people in our groups, that's what they struggle with, trying to be perfect. Where do you think we get that? The expectation that that's what we have to be. I think a lot of it comes from parental expectations growing up, but also people that come out of a faith tradition that are told they need to hold the example for others who are looking to them to be a Christ-like figure. I think it's systemic in our society, yeah. period. It starts with getting grade cards. A's were what you, you know, the good, smart kids got A's and you were applauded for that. And, and I mean, it was not easy to go home with a D or an F. Or even a C on a grade card, you know. Um, it's just the expectations of our society. I, I heard something. Uh, it's, it was about divine perfection. Speaking of to those of us that come from a faith tradition where we think maybe where that perfectionism comes from. But it says divine perfection is to include all imperfection and, and to forgive. It's like that is certainly a more helpful way that moves us toward it's almost like it's all or nothing like we're either broken or we have to be perfect 
instead of seeing it as a journey, which this is the title of the book. And so I think what you guys are inviting people to is the process of like, yeah, yeah, there, there is this place where we find ourselves. There is this ideal of what we hope to be as a human being and what we believe that is potentially possible to live into. And um, yeah, if you see, if you're too focused on either of those, you don't move at all. That, that's what you're saying. Right. And, and I wanted to go back to the chapter just before that overcoming state of fear and, and how it plays itself out in this chapter on denial, procrastination, perfectionism. And that was, it was years ago, uh, I was reading Yalom's book, and I quote him in here, and he was a non-faith-based writer, and he had come up with a theory on existentialism, and what he, he, he believed that there were these four givens that all humans are going to struggle with in their human existence and their human condition. And when I read those, I just, boy, it just really struck me that I struggled with those four givens. And so what I perceived those to be are they're like the four core fears. That's how I named them. He calls them the four givens. These are the things we're going to struggle with in our human condition. And the first one was that um, we're going to die and uh, there isn't anything I can do about that. I mean, we know we're going to die. Secondly, is that I'm responsible for the decisions and choices and, and basically for my life. Third one is isolation, which and I, I like describing isolation is it's there's a there's an, a basic aloneness that goes with our human condition. I mean, you can't live, can't feel what I feel. Even if you're there to comfort me and support me, I still have to live it me. And and that's we identify that in, in one of the four games. And then the last one, which is one I really wanted to focus on, was meaning. Why am I even on this planet? Why do I exist? Why am I here? Um, and, when, um, and what I found was that um, whether it was a believer or a non-believer in our groups, they all wrestled, we all do, at some level with these four questions. Um, but the good news for me that I've, as I have continued to work through those for myself, uh, especially meaning, um, because meaning can be articulated different ways and mean different things, but ultimately I think what it means is there's a reason that I'm on this planet, and it's a good reason, and there's something that if I fulfill my potential and my destiny as a human being, um, this is what I will bring to the world and expand it, and it has to do with love. And so... Uh, it, that's why I think Frankel's book, Man's Search for Meaning, has always meant so much for me, that when a person does not have a deep sense of meaning for their life, they drift and they wander and they struggle. And so I, I thought that was really important that we, we look at that in, in, this, in this book um, because how we are responding to those fears is everything. And so for me, it's interesting... Christ actually answers all four. And, wow. and, and I've looked at every other possibility. Jesus overcomes death. I'm never alone. He guides me in my responsibilities and will lead me. And the greatest one is the ultimate meaning for my life grows through that relationship. So we talk about that in this week. It's powerful.
Yeah, th- those are four fears that every human being can can identify with. So yeah, those those definitely resonate. Well, Scott, you don't coach yourself, so I'm going to turn this to Anna. Um, but you do on day four of that week, you begin to talk about inferiority and inadequacy, kind of what you're speaking to right here. Um, when it comes to meaning, you know, does our does our life matter? But I want to read to you, and I'm going to pass this to Anna to talk a little more about the inner critic. But on that day, uh, you said the inner critic stems from a sense of inferiority. We believe that others perceive us as failures because we perceive ourselves as failures. We uh, personify the inner critic, making it the spokesman for the way the world sees us. It nags and deceives. No matter how we perform, it likes to tell us what we should have done, not allowing us to enjoy any success, and it makes us feel deeply inadequate. So that day you begin to to look at that. Anna, how, how do we how do we begin to face that and yeah, as uh, the world's largest overthinker, I can identify with this chapter so much because I tend to be one that will replay conversations in my head that have happened and be like, ooh, I, I misstepped there, and ooh, that particular phrase could have been perceived as like hurtful or offensive, and um, you know, 99% of the time, like it's you know, just regular conversation. So I've, that that's something that I'm having to continually grow in is learning to take my own thoughts captive and not micromanage like things that like once something has happened, it's happened. And so it's not particularly useful for me to go back and replay a conversation in my head and beat myself up for something that I could have possibly phrased differently or, um, anyway, that's for me, um, one area that I continue to seek growth in is, um, just not micromanaging, uh, things that have happened in the past where I might have misstepped with my words. How does it feel to be more graceful and kind to yourself, Anna? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm learning that, that skill. I don't know that I've arrived yet, but I'm working diligently on it. Well, that's where we definitely need each other to remind us of that for sure. Scott, how, how do you see this? The inner critic. Um, gosh, it, it's brutal. Yes. Because it devalues everything. I've always said that criticism and shame are the loudest voices in our lives. Um, they shout over the top of the good thoughts and the grace. Um, I, I was studying Nan Merrill's um, Praying the Psalms, and um, it was one of the psalms, and I love how she wrote it, but I can't remember exactly what it was, but, but this is the way it was spoken to me. She used the word, she said something like, and this is David praying, God, don't judge me by what I've done or happened, but judge me by the aspirations of my heart. And that just was so freeing for me. And that's very similar, I think, to Paul saying what I want to do. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I don't yeah. do. And that what I don't want to do, I do. Oh, help me. You know, thank God for Jesus, for his grace. So I know the man that I aspire to be. I know how he would live, what he would be like, what his qualities would be like. And I long to be that man. And I feel that, that part of that aspiration is being inspired by God in Christ. And when I fall short, which I do a lot, a lot, 
Uh, I make mistakes all the time. There is grace, the voice of grace is, I, I see the aspirations of your heart. I see what you're trying to be. Get up, let's keep going. Um, we're going to grow from this. Um, and that actually goes back to Prochaska's model, which we talked about at the beginning, that action taken after relapse is better than what? No action at all. And so we, we are going to be a work in progress. And, and it's going to be a process. We're going to make mistakes. But I think if that aspiration ever dies, what kills it is the inner critic. The inner critic just drums it out. So you'll never do this. You failed again. You know, no one would believe in you, and they're all going to leave you. And that, I believe, is the voice of the enemy. To me, that is the, those are the thoughts that have to be taken captive. I found a study, and I, because of my disorganizational skills, I confess, um, <laughs> I cannot find it. Oh, it just drives me crazy. But it was one of the greatest ones ever. It was by a, a, a big sports psychologist who worked with, like, world-class athletes, like the champion tennis players, golfers, basketball players, baseball players. And what he found was that he worked with them on what they say to themselves after they make a mistake. He said that that was the most important conversation that they were ever going to have in their life and is what they say to themselves after they make a mistake. It's not what they say to themselves after they did it right and they've got the affirmation, but what are they saying to themselves after they make a mistake? Because, and he said they worked with them on articulating that. What would be the parts of it? What do you need to hear? Because it, that's how deadly I think he's trying to make the point that the inner critic is, because the inner critic will stifle the creativity it will cease our expansion. That's why I really believe shame and inner critic, are just, they work so hand in hand. It, I stop growing. And the minute I stop growing, those, when the aspirations of my heart, you know, and, uh, and I've been there. I've been there where it's like, it's useless. I slipped again. I made a mistake again. Or I got rejected again. You know, why it's, it's me. I'm just inherently flawed. That's a definition of toxic shame. But when I read that, that prayer by David and praying the Psalms by Nan Merrill, but judge me not by what I've, the mistakes I've made, but by the aspirations of my heart. The aspirations of your heart, when I hear that word, think about it, aspiration, spirit. So we're talking, this book is written about mind, body, and spirit. And listen, there is this human part of us that is a great mystery and we're living these lives and uh, hearts open, all of us, hopefully, with a larger story than just our story or just ourselves. And so, um, yeah, how spirit plays into us overcoming this inner critic and how belief in the aspiration of the heart, that there is something guiding it. And yes, we need each other. We probably need to take action physically. But yeah, we're talking the mysterious part of the human experience that needs the heart to be lifted. And uh, that's, a, that's a really beautiful thing to discover on this journey. Oh, it's, it's life-changing. Well, Anna, any, anything else um, on uh, the inner critic? Yeah, just maybe remembering it's a journey. <laughs> it's, not, uh, it's not, we never, we don't ever actually get there, um, which sometimes could seem a little futile, but it's growth. And if we're not growing, we're dying. So like not giving up because we haven't arrived yet, but just continuing on towards that 
destination of um, becoming more of who we were created to be. She, I just want to say, she said a word that has really evolved for me in the last year, especially in the last several months, and that is the word becoming. You know, it's future, um, growing. Um, God and I are co-creating. God and I are helping me become uh, the man that I really want to be, the person I want to grow into, the, the person that the, all this aspiring, the aspirations of my heart, I see him, I, I, and, and it pulls me forward. It lifts me up. Um, it's an exemplary cause. It's a North Star, um, and it's a vision. It's a vision. You quoted Julia Cameron. In yes, yeah. I and love she, that quote. Anna, you want to read that? Sure. This was, I think, from the artist's way. And she says, as we begin to pry ourselves loose from the old self-concepts, which would have been that inner critic, the negative self-talk, we find that our new emerging self may enjoy all sorts of adventures. And so that's just a great little inspiration that as we silence that inner critic, as we continue to follow that exemplary cause, like there will be more joy and more adventure and more goodness spilling out of our lives. And I, for one, want that. So the journey to becoming, you know, of, of breaking out of an old rut, out of an old negative pattern, uh, behaviors and responses, um, it begins with what we discuss in this week in Addictive Thinking. Um, and so I just have to tell this story because there's no other way to do it. But when I started Restore back 25 years ago, um, it was through my journey through the 12 steps with Christ that I became aware of how to get into a transformative process through a small group, through a community, but specifically through a specific process with Christ, the 12 steps. And so when I was doing Restore, all we had to offer for anybody with any kind of struggle in their life was the 12 steps. That was all we had. So if you were struggling with an addiction, we put you in the 12 steps. If you were struggling with grief, we put you in the 12 steps. If you were struggling with why you're on this planet, purpose for your life, we put you in 12 steps. If you just were lonely, we put you in 12 steps. That's all we had. And so when I went through the 12 steps uh, myself, it wasn't until I really understood step one that uh, I really moved towards transformation. And... And so, so in my work, I found that most people, 99% of the people that I, in, in the world do not think the 12 steps are for them. It's for those people, which we've talked about before, those who have addictions, alcohol, drugs, things of that nature. When the truth is anybody would benefit from a journey through the 12 steps. And so when, but they weren't coming into our groups because of the stigma that 12 steps had with them. People just didn't think, oh, when, yeah, I knew that everybody had a human condition and had struggles that would benefit from that. So when I got the opportunity to write Journey to Freedom, I had the opportunity to create a big net for Christ, to get people to step into a life-changing process and to, through self-examination, move towards transformation. Well, I knew that I knew that somehow I had to intersect, interject step one into this process just to make people aware of it because step one of the 12 steps is the beginning that moves us towards transformation. 
And so, um, real quick history, the 12 steps were written in the 1930s, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob, and, or, or the Oxford Movement Group, an evangelical group, and they had come up with a process, biblically, out of the Bible, out, out of the, right out of the Beatitudes, that a fellow alcoholics could go through, it could transform their desire to drink. So they created the 12 steps back in the 1930s, right out of the Beatitudes. And so of those Beatitudes, they came up with those 12 steps. Well, the first step of the 12 steps says that I admit that I'm powerless over my human condition and that my life has become unmanageable. Well, in 12 and 12, which is a support book for the 12 steps, they say that of all the 12 steps, step one is the only step that must be taken perfectly. No reason to even go on to the other 11 steps. If you don't get this one right, nothing's, nothing's going to happen. And so when I looked at the history of the 12 steps and found that step one, I admit that I'm powerless over my human condition, my life has become unmanageable, had been written out of, they, they brought that out of the first beatitude, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I, when you hear that, and then you hear step one, then I get to understand why they would say this is the only step that must be taken perfectly. And that is, and until we admit that I can't control something, that I can't manage something, that I need a power greater than myself to do for me, then we're still in denial. And denial is what we call the, um, it just is ultimate enabler. It just enables the person to continue to make the same choices over and over. So the beginning of transformation that we point people towards in Journey to Freedom is when we bring them aware of what it means to admit that they're powerless and to look at their life and say, what is it that I need to let go of and turn over to God and trust? And that is the beginning of true hope in my life. And that is the beginning of transformation when you finally lay it down. Um, that's, what we, that's what we do in this, in this day. And that's, to me, it is the most significant day in the whole book because a group really becomes a group after everyone starts sharing what their powers. And that's how we do it in a group. We actually say, admit, we say our name, we admit exactly what we're powerless over, whether it comes to relationships, behaviors, feelings, grief, all the loss, whatever, whatever it is, and all emotions, responses, we look at what we just, we need to trust God with. It all begins with powerlessness. Anna, you, um, you witness to this regularly in the groups that you do, and you do too, Scott. Um, and this happens pretty early on. This is week, week two? two. Yes, week yeah. two. So do you find that so quickly that people are just dying to, to, to have a safe place to share that? Or do you find that it's it, it's difficult? What happens in a room when people release that yeah. and they, they take that step? It's a it's a really like special thing to get to be a part of on a regular basis. And um, each time, like, you know, Scott and I will will lead off. Like we start with our own vulnerabilities. So sharing things about like our past wounds, our present struggles, maybe circumstances that are really difficult, that are completely out of our control. Anything that we can think of where we're at that we're powerless over. Like we lead out by sharing that. And it's amazing to see when the other people in the group see like, oh, you you went there? 
I, I guess I can too. And so people will begin to share things. And then we'll um, often, like, once people have gone around and you're listening to everybody's, you know, certain things that they're struggling with, and then that brings other things to mind that you're like, oh, yeah, I didn't even think in my own life I also have this. Um, so then oftentimes we'll be like, okay, well, maybe maybe we'll go around again because maybe some other things came to mind while we were sharing. And um, the whole temperature of the room changes. And, like, you can just kind of feel people's hearts, like, invisibly connecting across the room because that is the law of universality. Like, we all, our struggles may be different, but we all struggle. And then there's just an element of shared humanity in that. Um, and so it does like they walk in still a little nervous on week two, cause it's kind of still a bunch of strangers. And then by the time you walk out the door at the end of the evening on week two, it, you're no longer strangers, you're connected. Um, and so it is like, it sounds like a really simple thing to say out loud what you're powerless over, but when you do it in a group of people and you recognize that everybody is struggling with things and some of them are really big things that you would never suspect looking at them on the outside. I mean, we've had people that are like in full-time ministry and sharing like things that are like very significant that you're like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine a pastor would struggle with that. Or, you know, you see a stay-at-home mom and she's got this horrific thing in her past. And you're like, man, I never saw that coming with you're driving around in your minivan or, I mean, they're just, it's really, really powerful. Um, and I would think, I think from what I have seen, um, it's just like, that is essential in really, um, connecting the hearts and emotions and, uh, relationships in the group is when we really kind of take the mask off and say, this is it. I'm powerless over these things. Even though there are lots of things that would hold us back from doing that, we all desperately we want to and need to. Yeah. The significance of that day is so great. I cannot overstate that the way that denial creeps into my mind, the way that I work it to somehow, somehow still sustain some level of control. And that's, I think, what Jesus is saying. When we come to the complete end of ourselves, and we really embrace our personal poverty, our brokenness. That is the beginning. He's saying, you're blessed. It's the most blessed place you can be because that's when you're going to reach for me. As long as somehow I believe I can sustain control, I can manage, it keeps it away from Christ. And it's, that's why it, it must be taken perfectly. And so when a person says and admits this is what I cannot control, but I'm trying to control it. I'm trying to manage it. And it's just, it's the beginning of freedom. It's, it's the beginning of transformation when we finally say, I can't, and I, and I turn it over. But I'm telling you, nothing is harder for a human being to do than to admit that they can't. Our society does everything it can to tell you, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You can make it, you know. And um, transformation begins when we turn to a power greater than ourselves, Christ. Well, friends, if you're finding it really hard um, to believe in that, um, to confront negative thoughts or to name fear that you're facing in your life, you're in denial of some life-controlling issue and you're trying to deal with it with perfectionism, 
if you're wrestling with the inner critic, um, that's what restores here to uh, to help with is to help you begin to move toward a more healthy, life-giving place. And uh, if you don't think it's possible, would you reach out to us? Because we do believe it is possible, and sometimes we need other human beings to believe and see for us. And that's what Journey to Freedom is all about. That's what Restore is here for. So, uh, Scott, Anna, thank you so much um, for sharing all this with us. And uh, if you would love to find out more about Restore and the small groups that we offer, you can check us out online, www.restoresmallgroups.org. And you can see the in-person groups and online groups that we're offering for this fall. But please, friends, uh, wherever you find yourself, may you just, as Scott said um, in that psalm, may your heart be open to the possibility that you can change, you can grow, you can move to something better. But take care, friends. We'll see you back here soon. Where do you want to go from here? How do you want to, how do you want to end it? What's the last thing I said, do you know? <laughs> <laughs> it was something about pirates. I don't know. Pirates? Oh, wait, uh, maybe, uh, maybe pretty, I feel pretty...